open in prayer for us. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us, all of the revelation that you have given to us, all of the deep love that you express to us in the scriptures and in our lives. Thank you so much for Zev Rosenberg and all that you've uh, given to him, his gift of teaching. But today, Lord, we ask that your spirit would truly illuminate us about the rich traditions of how you want to be intimate with us, you want to be married to us, and uh, we ask that you would, through your spirit, help each one of us to understand what that means at the point where we need to have that understanding. We give this class and this time and Zev to you, and thank you for what you'll do in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, now, the other side, oh yes, I think the microphone is working. So I think we finally got all of our technology in sync. Um, let me just explain a little bit about how this came about. Last spring, uh, when John and I were finishing up our presentation on the letter to the Hebrews, I was approached by Dr. Moretta, who asked me a subject that interested him that he thought I might be able to address is Jewish marriage customs and how that influenced or how that is reflected in the teaching ministry of Jesus. And I thought, now that is an interesting subject, um, because after all, um, we do have several important parables of our Lord that open with issues of marriage. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. How many of you recognize that parable that that opens? Well, I'm not getting much of a response. <laughs> Have you had enough caffeine this morning? <laughs> okay, we do need to remember that the, we teach classes here that are involved participation. <laughs> or, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Maybe this is a little more identifiable because we've already got some of the characters introduced. Which parable is this? Oh my, 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 I'm going to have to report you all to your pastor. The wise and foolish virgins. The wise and foolish virgins. Reminds me of one of the stories I once heard from my rector that uh, he was talking, uh, the rector of the church where I was baptized, he was talking to one of the uh, church school children who said, Father, um, would you please explain to me about virgins? And he thought, what in the world have they been teaching in Sunday school in this kid's grade? So he says, you mean like the Virgin Mary? He says, no, I understand that. What I don't understand is the King James Virgin. So, at any rate, these are two of the more significant parables in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, some of which have parallels in other Gospels. The wise and foolish virgins is a parable that is unique to Matthew. 
<coughs> and we'll be looking at those parables next week. But we first have to get some background on this subject of Jewish marriage rights in the kingdom of God. And so the first thing we have to look at in terms of the background is the relationship of Yahweh and Israel as a covenant of marriage. The idea of marriage between God and Israel. Then the second subject in parable, contemporary Jewish marriage rights and the teaching and ministry of Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, two weeks from today, we're going to finish up, in the end, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we're going to talk then about the idea of marriage or the consummation of marriage as a symbol of the last things. So, hopefully... All right, now, this is material that actually John presented last, last spring, so I'm going to see how much you remember, okay? Although he did not necessarily present it in this order. Uh, the central metaphor of the prophets in many ways in ancient Israel was that the relationship between Yahweh and Israel was one of marriage, so, for example, in Jeremiah 2, 2, and 3, 9, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me, but now she defiled the land and committed adultery with wood and stone. In other words, what is idolatry likened to in this way? Adultery, exactly. If Israel is married to God, then worshiping other gods is, in effect, an act of adultery. Or also, then, the call, return faithless people, for I, God, am your husband. Okay. Now, this marriage relationship, essentially is played out in other prophets as well, Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, and Ezekiel. They all use the metaphor, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. How many of you remember that part of your vows? <laughs> for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, etc., etc. Okay? For better. This is Isaiah 51. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. But the idea being is at the opening of the parable, he's saying, I didn't divorce her. I sent her away, but I didn't divorce her. So how is that marriage relationship between God and Israel understood? Permanent. Unbreakable. Okay. And this is for worse. In the prophet Amos, 
You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, how many of you remember how John opened up this concept of God knowing Israel? Anybody remember? Yada, yada, yada. Okay. How many people, you know, how many, do we have Seinfeld fans here? I have to admit, I never watched Seinfeld. And so I didn't realize, one of the things you got to know about, it's set in New York City, right? One of the things that has happened to the English language in New York City is the infiltration of certain Hebrew terms through Israeli, ex, former ex-Israeli taxi drivers. One of them is copacetic. How many of you have ever heard the term copacetic? It's basically the Hebrew term kolbetzetic, all is in order, or all is right, okay? Yada, yada, yada is actually another Hebrew word, the word yada. Anybody remember what the word yada is? To know, exactly. So what is yada, yada, yada? You know, you know, you know. Okay, that word yada has a very specific history. If you will look in Genesis chapter 4, and this is the point where we are going to all look at our Bibles. Okay. Who would like to read Genesis 4 1? Okay. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Okay. That is making it very explicit. Who has another translation? And Adam knew Eve. Exactly. And Adam knew his wife Eve. That is the euphemism that in the Hebrew language, when you see that term yada, in that sense, it is talking about the most intimate form of knowledge. We're not just talking about Adam had a passing acquaintance with Eve, and somehow, heaven knows, she gave birth to Cain. And then they moved into the suburbs and started raising Cain. All right, and now take a look at 417. Who would like to read 417? No volunteer? Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Again, lay with, but what's the Hebrew word there? No. It's important. Let's not get too... You know, it's th in this case, the actual Hebrew word yada is important. We're building a concept here. The concept is, how do you really know a person? How do you know a person? We are talking about here the most intimate possible relationship you can have. And finally... We need to look at 425. And this time I'll read it to make sure we get the right word. 
And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Okay? Adam knew his wife. Cain knew his wife. Adam knew his wife again. So what are we talking about when we have this Hebrew word, yada? What are we kind of a relationship are we talking about? Well, we are talking about physical, but what's important about this? The word yada means what? New. What kind of knowledge? Intimate knowledge. The kind of intimate knowledge that comes from a consummated marriage relationship. Okay? A consummated marriage relationship. Now, as I mentioned, lots of prophets really use this, but probably nobody more than the prophet Hosea. And Hosea might very well have said this at one time, what I do for this job. Okay, how many people know something about the life of the prophet Hosea? Anybody? Oh boy. Okay. Tell us about Hosea. He was told to go take a prostitute for a wife. Uh, yeah, she went back into prostitution, and the Lord told her to go and take her back again. Thanks, Barb. In other words, he was told that he should go and marry a woman who was a... Now, what's interesting to keep in mind, let me just give a little background about Hosea, okay? Hosea was a resident of the northern kingdom of Israel. This is after the split of the kingdom after Solomon, uh, when there was a split in the kingship, and he served especially at a time when the northern kingdom was probably at its height under the rule of a king named Jeroboam, son of Joash. Now, there are two kings named Jeroboam in Israelite history. It's important to keep them separate. Jeroboam I, son of Nebat, uh, was the one who actually led the revolt against Solomon's son and formed the northern kingdom. Jeroboam, son of Joash, was a descendant of King Jehu, who was anointed by Elijah to depose the house of Ahab. How many people remember Ahab and Jezebel? What was the big problem with Ahab and Jezebel? What did, they what did Jezebel introduce into Israel that they hadn't really known before? The worship of the Canaanite god Baal. Baal. Now what's interesting is that Baal also has sexual connotations. It is specifically referring to the sexual act. And so the word Baal in Hebrew also means husband. Hold that in mind. Okay, hold that thought in mind. That the Hebrew word Baal can be used for husband, particularly if the marriage has been consummated. 
So that was the real problem, and Jehu then staged a rebellion against the house of Ahab. Ahab had already died. It was his son who was on the throne. And the entire house of Ahab was massacred in a particular place where they had their summer palace, the Valley of Jezreel. Note that name as well. It will show up Jezreel. Now, the basic problem is what had happened after Jehu took power and his house took power as kings of Israel. Did they eliminate the worship of Baal? Anybody? No, you got a 50%, 50-50 chance on this one. <laughs> no, he didn't. And so therefore, what God had decided is that the massacre of Jezreel was not going to be reckoned as an act of spiritual cleansing of the kingdom, but a simple massacre for power. And therefore, the house of Jehu was going to have to bear the guilt for that. Now, Baal, as I said, is husband. It refers to the act of copulation. So what kind of a god was Baal? What? Fertility. He was a fertility god. And his wife was named Ashtoret, Ishtar. Okay. And therefore, one of the ways in which you worship Baal was cult prostitution. So Hosea, who probably came from the B'nai Hanavi'im movement that Elijah and Elisha had initiated, which was a kind of a back-to-the-desert movement, semi-monastic, to try to revitalize the religion of Israel and reclaim its purity, sort of, let's go back to the desert. Things were fine in the desert, so let's go back to the wilderness, and God will, in effect, recourt Israel. And now here comes Hosea, and he's being asked to take probably a cult prostitute as his wife. So let's look at Isaiah, uh, Hosea 1, 2 through 9. Who would like to read Hosea 1, 2 through 9? Okay. When the Lord began to speak to Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman. Okay. Again, I have to say, we can't be too loose in our translation. In other words, not just promiscuous. Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Anybody have that translation? Okay. Uh, would you please continue? Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Use of that word over and over and over again is crucial to the passage. Okay, starting in verse 3. Would you like to read? Yeah. So he married Gomer, daughter of Then the Lord 
okay? In other words, I'm not going to regard the massacre of Jezreel as a good and virtuous thing. It's going to be simply a bloody coup d'etat, and I'm going to requite the house of Yehu for it. All right. Would someone like to read 6, starting in verse 6? Lo Ruhama. Okay, the word actually, who has another word besides loved? Mercy, Mercy. that is closer. Mercy is the best, ruhama. The word rahamim, mercy, rahem, to have mercy upon, comes actually from the root rahem, which means womb. We get very physical in Hebrew. We get very physical in Hebrew. I will, and now, I want you to notice something else. Back in verse 4, um, I mean, verse 3, what does it say about the son? She conceived and bore him a son. Okay, so whose child was the one who got named Jezreel? Hosea's. Now, verse 6. She conceived and bore a daughter. Was it Hosea's? Doesn't say. Probably not. Okay. It was tough being a prophet. It was probably be even tougher being a prophet's kid. You got strange names. So Jezreel probably wasn't that too bad in a school, uh, you know, in a, in a classroom roll call. But Loruhama, not pitied, or no mercy. That was a difficult name. Okay. And then verses 8 and 9. Okay, hold on. Again, we are dealing with too loose a translation. Wording here is critical. She conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name Lo-Ami, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, what does that seem to be, you know, breaking or reversing? The covenant. Instead of saying, I will, you will be my people and I will be your God, God is here saying, you are not my people and I am not your God. Again, who was Lo-Ami's father? We don't know. 
So if Gomer was a cult prostitute for Baal, what had she probably been doing in the meantime while she was married to Hosea? She was going back to the temple of Baal for a good time. Okay, engaging in that cult prostitution. Next passage I want to look at is Hosea 3, 1 through 5. We're going to skip back and forth here. All right. Someone like to read 3, 1 through 5. Okay. All right. Now, does it say who this woman was? We don't know. However, the assumption is it was Gomer. Oh, she had already been unfaithful to him. She had many lovers. Now, what does it mean to say that he redeemed her for 15 shekels and a homer and a letech of barley? What condition had she fallen into? Slavery. slavery. She had fallen into slavery, so he had to go and redeem her, and he redeemed her and her children. Okay, who were the children at this point? Well, certainly, Lo Ruhama and Lo Ami, no mercy and not my people. Okay. So he had to redeem them, too. Evidently, she left with the children. And what is the condition of their getting back together? They're not going to be intimate with each other. She's not going to have, in other words, they're going to live together, as it were, in celibacy. So where did he take her to do this, would you guess? The wilderness, exactly. He's taking her out. He probably, if he had come from the community of the Bnei Hanavi'im, he is probably taking her out to that community where they will live in that community, out in the wilderness, practicing the religion of Israel, but not actually together. Now, the story does have something of a happy ending. Let's go back to Hosea 2, verses 13 to 23. I will go ahead and read this for you. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry 
and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Ahor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, in Hebrew, Ishi, and no longer will you call me my Baal, Baali. All right, you see, I told you to remember Baal could be used for husband. You will call me Ishi and no longer Baali. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. All right. I'm about to come to the probably the key passage in the entire book of Hosea, because this is a passage that has an important part in the worship ritual of Judaism to this very day. Okay, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Here's that word know again. The erastichli le'olam. The erastichli betzedek uvamishpat uvachesed uvarachamim this is the phrase that is used by devout Orthodox Jews when putting on their prayer boxes, the tefillin, in the final stage of wrapping the leather strap three times around the middle finger, you say, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice in loving kindness and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. Okay? Now, what is this image that is being conjured up by wrapping something around your finger here? Wedding ring, exactly. The word translated here, betrothed, is actually a term for marriage. It's not just engagement. And we're going to go into that in a little more detail. And how does it end after this marriage ceremony? You will know the Lord. You will be back in that state of intimate knowledge of God as a result of this. And as a result, things also go better for the kids. Someone like to read 1, 10 through 11? Chapter 1, 10 through 11? Might be chapter 2, I'm sorry. 
chapter 2, 10 through 11. Which one do you want me to read? All right, I don't know which. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. What? Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Okay. In other words, it says in another place, I will have mercy on no mercy. And instead of being called not my people, you'll be called my people again. Okay, the restoration of the covenant, the new covenant. Okay, in other words, those poor kids, no mercy and not my people, probably got a very welcome name change. No mercy, Lo Ruhama was probably renamed Ruhama. Mercy, pity. And Lo Ami was probably named Ami. Okay, my people. And the day of Jezreel shall be great. Now, we don't know exactly what happened to the rest of um, the kids or to Gomer or to Hosea, for that matter. But we do know the end of the story when it comes to this covenant of marriage between God and Israel. And we looked at that last year in connection with our study of the letter to the Hebrews. This is, as I said last spring, this is the one passage in the Older Testament where somebody asked me for chapter and verse, I can give this one in my sleep. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Okay, and I have it up there. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, and here come the key words, although I was a husband to them. Okay, they broke the covenant. They, in effect, what did they do? They committed adultery. How? Worshiping other gods. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they will be my people. That is the covenant formula. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. There's that word, yada. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, their sin I will remember no more. So that yada relationship will be restored in the new covenant. Now, Time for a little vocabulary lesson. Okay. Hosea said, I will betroth you. In Hebrew, erastich. 
erastich. However, erastich does not just mean engagement. It's a marriage rite called erusin. Erusin. Okay, what is erusin? Erusin is, in a very real sense, full marriage. Full marriage. And the way it is usually contracted is this. A man gives a woman, in the presence of witnesses, money or something of monetary value, like a ring, and says to her in the presence of these witnesses, Behold, you are consecrated to me with this ring according to the religion of Moses and Israel. Notice the term consecrated to me, mikudeshet. It is also called kidushin, consecration. It's a nice way of dressing up the fact that what you have here is an act of acquisition. The man is acquiring, acquiring a wife. She becomes his chattel. Yes, I'm afraid that's the way it works, the way it worked in those days. Okay? For all negative purposes, they are considered fully married at Erusin. She is considered his wife. They have none of the privileges of marriage yet. Where does she continue to live then? With her parents in her father's household. Is she allowed to have any good times with any man at all, even her husband? No. She must be completely celibate during this time. Then there is the word no. Now again, that's intimate knowledge, but it also is a euphemism for intercourse. (coughs) That's the Hebrew yada. And from that we get the second Jewish marriage rite, which is called nisuin. Nisuin. Okay, Nisuin is where the bridegroom goes to the bride's parents' house to fetch his bride, brings her home, and in the presence of witnesses, they go into a room to be secluded together. The door is shut with the witnesses on the outside. They remain in that room for sufficient time to consummate the marriage. And from that point on, they are full husband and wife. And they are allowed to cohabit together. And to celebrate this great occasion, it is followed by seven days of partying. A full week of partying at each of these seven blessings are said on each of them. The key point is that at the time of Jesus, These two ceremonies were separated by as much as a year. As much as a year. So, in other words, she was living for as much as a year in her father's household, but legally married to her husband. 
and therefore subject to all the laws of adultery, but not allowed to have intimate relations with her husband, or indeed any. So what I want you to do is now turn to Deuteronomy. I didn't have a slide for this at the time, so I'm sorry. You'll just have to take notes. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. Okay, would someone like to read Deuteronomy 22, 22? Okay, now the Hebrew here is important because the Hebrew here is be'ulat ba'al. In other words, a woman who has already in a consummated marriage relationship with her husband. Okay, and what happens if she commits adultery with another man? Both she and the adulterer have to be put to death. Now, I know this may seem like a little bit of nitpicking, sort of like, which way would you choose to die? But there were four types of death penalty in ancient Israel. The most severe was stoning. That was considered the worst way to die and was reserved for the most heinous offenses. Next in order of severity was burning. Third in order of severity was being run through with a sword. And the least severe was strangulation. Okay. And it doesn't sound like it's much of a, you know, a, which would you prefer, to be strangled or stoned to death? But the fact of the matter is the idea, you have to understand that some death penalty offenses were more heinous than others. Where it just says they must die, it's talking about strangulation. It's talking about the least severe form. Now, look at verses 23 to 27. Someone like to read that? All right, let me then. If there is a betrothed virgin, that is, a woman who is an arusa, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death, for in this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no man to rescue her. Okay? In other words, what is worse than committing adultery if you have consummated the marriage with your husband? 
committing adultery if you haven't, if you are an arusa, if you're in that year. Now, let's get down to brass tacks. Matthew 1, 18 to 22. Anybody? Okay, that's good enough. Okay, so what was Mary's legal status at the time when she became pregnant with Jesus? What? She was consecrated to Joseph. She was an Arusa. She was legally married already. Where was she living? In her parents' house. Okay. So, what was Joseph supposed to conclude? Wasn't his kid. Lo ruhama, lo ami. <laughs> okay. Now, as for what he was contemplating doing, there are some, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but under, under Jewish law, there are certain circumstances it is, there are two, you know, two legal principles at work within marriage. One is that everyone who marries does so under the cognizance or the auspices of the court. And the second thing is that the court has the power to expropriate a person's property and make it ownerless. So the idea is he was probably looking for some way for the court to retroactively expropriate the ring he'd given her. And since he had not presented her with his property, his money, she had never been legally married to him. He was essentially trying to save her from a situation of adultery. But you understand, this is, this is the thing that's at issue here. Now, another thing to understand about Jewish marriage and family law is, what is the angel telling him to do? Go ahead and what? Take her into your house. He didn't necessarily... Now, keep in mind, for Nisuin, for that second stage of marriage, you don't actually have to consummate the marriage. You just have to be in the room for a sufficient amount of time to have done so. Okay, 
and it says he did not know her, he did not have relations with her, but he did take her to be his wife, and therefore, when the child is born, who is considered the child's father? Joseph. Bingo. He is acknowledging the child to be his own, whether he begat her biologically or not. That is critical. Why? Why is Matthew telling what is What has Matthew just preceded this story with? Lineage. Lineage. To prove that Joseph was of what lineage? House of David. The house of David. And therefore, if Jesus is considered for all intents and purposes legally his son, what does that make Jesus? The descendant of David. Ah, all of this is very interesting, but what I want you to take away from this is essentially two things. First, I want you to keep those terms in mind, erusin and nisuin. Erusin and nisuin. I'll okay, I think it should be on your handout. Okay. Erusin and Nisuin. Okay? Keep that in mind. Keep the distinction in mind. But also keep in mind the process that is involved. Because it will have a bearing on how we understand some of the teachings of Jesus. <coughs> and the second thing I want you to keep in mind, what have we been looking at as the background for the use of Jewish marriage customs in the teachings of Jesus. What, are we, what relationship have we been looking at? God and Israel. In that, what kind of a relationship is that? Marriage. Who's the bridegroom? God. Who's the bride? Okay. Hold those thoughts. All right? Questions? Yes. When the man says to his betrothed, you are consecrated to me. That's right. Hareyat mekudeshet, from the word kadash, we get kadosh, holy. Now it seems to me, from your description, that that's a much higher elevated status than a mere acquisition or chattel. This is a, it's a sacred statement to me that the man is making. Yes. Beyond just making an act. But legally speaking, he's just making an acquisition. It's okay if I think about it as sacred? Yeah. <laughs> it's, and I got news for you. It's especially okay if your wife thinks of it that way. Well, I think that comes first. And then the acquisition is made. Well, the, the reason I say that is because one of the first passages of the Talmud of rabbinic law that I studied was from the, from the tractate Kiddushin, which is a tractate on marriage laws, among other things. And the first Mishnah I studied was Ha'isha Niknit Drachim. A woman is purchased, literally, in one of three ways. And that's talking about Nisuin, I mean Erusin. It is considered, under Jewish law, an act of acquisition. 
Yeah. Will we talk later on about the bridegroom's preparation during the period of the uh, Preparing the house, preparing the... Well, yeah, he has to prepare the house. He has to have a house to bring her to. Okay. But again, what is, what is going on here? All right. You've got to keep in mind, we are dealing here in the Mediterranean world. Uh, it's a little complex here, but I love what John Dominic Crossan describes the predominating ethic is as an ethic, a libidinized ethic of face and shame, okay? A woman was essentially worth what she could bring when someone asked for her in marriage. That was a woman's net worth, if you will. What kind of a bride piece would a prospective bridegroom be prepared to pay for her? Okay. Now, on top of that, why? Because essentially, what she was doing is that up until her marriage, to whom did she belong? To her father. Now who, who is she going to belong to? Her husband. In other words, she, they were losing property to another family. So naturally, one of the things you know, that they wanted to do was to be compensated for their loss. Another thing that's involved is obviously a man was not really expected to be able to marry unless he could provide for his wife. Because one of the things he had to present her with, and I'll have this term for you next week, is a ketubah. Now, a ketubah is sometimes it's translated as a marriage license, but what it really does is it specifies the woman's rights both in the marriage and in case of the dissolution of marriage. So it delineates, you know, her property that stays with her even in the event of divorce, her property that goes to her husband, also what the obligations of a husband are. And those obligations are described in a modern ketubah as she'er kesut ve'ona, food, clothing, and sexual satisfaction. Now, if she has means of her own, she is allowed to let her husband off the hook for food and clothing. He's never off the hook for the third thing. Yeah? What did Joseph know about Mary when he became betrothed? That's a good question. We don't have any knowledge of that in Scripture itself. We do have a lot of stuff from tradition, Lot legendary? What? Uh, the question is, what did Joseph know about Mary before she became betrothed to him? Okay. We don't really know a lot about Mary. Uh, according to tradition, not found in Scripture, actually, she herself was a child of a great lineage, the child of Joachim and Anna, and Joachim was also of the house of David, and Anna was of a priestly household. This was good connections. Okay. 
So we don't know this for sure. This is a matter of tradition. But that also, from a very young age, apparently, now, you know, again, there are lots of debates about this subject. And so, for example, in many Christian traditions, the idea is this, that Joseph was already had been married, had had kids from a previous marriage, was now a widower, and was being asked to, in effect, take custody of Mary uh, and uh, to be a stepmother to his children. And those would have been considered his brothers and sisters. That's all tradition. That's not in scripture. Yeah. Well, yeah. Today, I would have been insisting on a DNA study. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I know. You're telling me what? Am I on candid camera? Uh, okay. Uh, he never had relations with her. So he never had relations, so he knew it wasn't his kid. That would have been unnecessary. Yeah, he, would, he knew it wasn't his child. Okay. One of the things that we have had, unfortunately, in our culture is to a certain extent, angels have become far too domesticated. The appearance of an angel in biblical terms, what is the first thing the angel usually has to say to the human to whom they're appearing? Be not afraid, fear not. This was a terrifying encounter. Okay, so yeah, it was awfully impressive. However, Joseph did have a decision to make. Was he going to be obedient to that angelic vision? Or was he going to do what the right and proper legal thing to do? Yeah. Was that Christmas that day or that today? Or both? What? Nisuin. It is done today, however, the waiting period has been reduced <laughs> to the time it takes to read the ketubah. <laughs> okay, so if you go to a Jewish wedding today, you're actually seeing two ceremonies, one of which takes place under the wedding canopy, which is the presentation of the ring with the recitation of that formula. There's always blessing over wine. The formula, behold, you are consecrated to me with this ring according to the religion of Moses and Israel. And there are always witnesses present. Then the ketubah is read. And then seven blessings are recited. And again, uh, the couple is escorted to a room which has only one door. They go into that room. And the door is shut. Witnesses are on the outside to make sure they stay in that room from which there is no other exit for sufficient time for to consummate the marriage. What they're actually doing is breaking their fast because they've been fasting up until this point. So what there really is in that room is not, a, you know, a wedding couch. It's food. <laughs> okay.
Yes. But again, keep in mind, what Joseph was trying to do was not just to, you know, according to law, what he really should have done is what? Divorce her, which would have brought an immense shame on her, okay, and immense shame on her parental household, okay, assuming her parents were still alive. However, what he wanted to do was find a way to make sure there would be no stigma attached. He was going, as the phrase would go, you know, beyond the strict letter of the law by using a sense, a legal dodge to retroactively annul the marriage rather than to divorce her. Anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, again, it was never part, a legitimate part of the religion of Israel. But it's interesting because there is another word for a cult prostitute which is used in the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis. The word is Kadeshah, which comes from that same root, Kadosh, holy. In other words, a woman consecrated to a god, fertility god, for the purpose of worship of that god through an act of prostitution. That's what would have been going on at the temple of Baal. Yeah, I got news for you. The temple of Yahweh didn't have quite as attractive a form of liturgy. (laughs) Any other questions? Yeah. So what yeah, they were considered in that uh, in those fertility religions, they were considered the children of the God. So they lived in the same oh yeah, they they were considered. Th- th- there was no stigma attached to them. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you all very much.